The story of scripture starts with um, God, just God. Uh, Before there was anything else, there is a creator who then creates. And so this God creates man, and man begins to flourish, and um, you have these ups and downs because um, not too long after God creates man, man rebels against God, and there's this fall, and sin enters the world as we rebelled collectively um, through our federal head, Adam. And, and so there's this division between God and man now because God is holy and, and we have defied this holy, infinite being. And so um, the history plays out to where there's um, all this calamity and, and the world is just fractured, but God is constantly speaking promises into that. Um, he's speaking grace into that and, and he's telling us that this will not always be this way. And man would look forward with hope sometimes, but often would not. Um, and we'll look forward with hope in things that are created instead of the creator. But the creator would break in and, and we see that he would zero in on his chosen people. And so Abram is called by God and, and God gives him a new name, Abraham, and promise him that, that his family, his offspring will be innumerable and he will become a nation that will bless all the nations of the world. And so um, this family, you kind of fast forward through this, but this family ends up in Egypt because of a famine in the promised land. So Israel, they flee Israel to, to find refuge in Egypt and God has providentially brought all that together and then they start to live there and they live there for generations. In fact, they're there for about 400 years. But at the time they come, they're like welcomed guests because Joseph um, has become second in power in Egypt and all this stuff. Um, but over the years, the pharaohs or the kings don't know who the Hebrew people are, the Israelites. And they actually become jealous that they're multiplying and they're gaining power and wealth and everything. And so they start to oppress them. And so now you have 400 years roughly of the people of God, the chosen people of God living in slavery. They're oppressed. They're worked um, just to unreasonable ends and and it's just awful and it's bitter and they know that. And so um, there comes a point where Moses is met by God and this burning bush. Um, And so Moses finds out that, okay, I'm supposed to now lead the people of God out of Egypt back to Canaan, the promised land. And so now, I'm sorry, hold on just a second. Leaking. Uh, so the, the people of God um, are now being led by Moses and Moses goes and confronts Pharaoh and he's like, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God to worship our God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh is very much against it and there's this back and forth, you know, there's 10 plagues, um, pretty famous story where God is judging all the lowercase g gods of Egypt, proving that there is only one true God. Um, but each time God would harden Pharaoh's heart and um, that's harden. And so there, there's a very big thing there for this. Um, but, but each time Pharaoh would be like, okay, you can go. No, you can't go. And so finally, this final thing that happens is called the Passover. And so there comes a point where God tells Moses to prepare the people. You're going to eat a meal in haste. Um, but before you eat that meal, the lamb that you're going to eat, you're going to slaughter. You're going to sacrifice that lamb and you're going to take this hyssop branch and you're going to smear the blood all over the door frame to your house. Because the angel of death is coming. And the firstborn of every household will die in Egypt unless there is blood of the sacrificial lamb covering the doorposts. And if I see that, I'll pass over and your firstborn will not die. 
And this happens. Like you just imagine the wailing as an entire nation. Everyone accepting the Israelites who faithfully had this Passover lamb's blood placed over it so that the angel of death would literally pass over that house without striking the firstborn. Thousands upon thousands, thousands if not millions upon millions of firstborns dead in a night. And all of these families crying out in grief. And Pharaoh finally says, get out, go. And the people of God flee. They've had this meal. They're eating it in haste. They're not supposed to use any kind of leavening. It's unleavened bread, this lamb's meat, and they're, they're just doing everything. They're eating dressed, ready to go so that they can flee, and they flee, and God delivers them. And as they're delivered, um, they're reminded, this Passover, you're going you're gonna to repeat this meal every year to never forget what I did when I delivered you, that I passed over your firstborn. But I struck the Egyptians so that I could save you, I could rescue, I could pull you out of that, I could free you from slavery. And so every year, the Jews would have this celebration, this meal, this Passover meal, where they would remember, because of this annual observance for all generations, was given to them, this Passover meal. And so why would God say, you need to do this forever? Indulge this Passover meal annually. Don't miss it. It's important. Continue on through all generations. Why would God establish this kind of Passover observance? It's because we all have a tendency to forget what we need to really remember. That's just how we are as humans. We tend to forget the very things that we need to remember. And so as we continue in our exploration of the gospel according to Mark, um, calling this series, This Changes Everything, we are in Mark um, chapter 14. We're going to be starting in verse 22. And leading up to this, Jesus is now in what we call Passion Week. So um, this is the week when he enters Jerusalem and does some teaching. And so we see in the text leading up to this that he has taught a lot about the, the end times, what to expect, um, some things that are happening. He predicts the destruction of the temple, which we saw actually happen in AD 70. And so um, he's, he's doing all these things that are just really jarring a lot of people. And the religious leaders are like at this kind of frantic fever pitch, like he's got to die. And there are all these plots. Judas Iscariot, uh, the betrayer, Judas has decided that he's going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so he's made this arrangement with the religious elite that uh, I'll betray him. And so all of this is kind of in the works. And Jesus says, the Passover is coming. And so I've made preparations. And so he sends some of his disciples, you're going to go to this house that's got an upper room. We call it the upper room. You might hear that a lot in Christian circles. Um, so this is uh, the household of someone who apparently has some wealth. And there's a room, an upper room, where all of the disciples could gather. And so Jesus is here with his 12 disciples, and they're here to observe this Passover meal. And so remember what that Passover meal is about. And this is where we pick up in the context of Jesus having this meal. It says, verse 22, As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
This is the institution of what we call the Lord's Supper. It's also known as communion or the Eucharist. But Jesus is transitioning here this ongoing meal that is full of symbolism, the Passover meal, into a new memorial meal full of symbolism. And so understand, he is not saying, we no longer do this meal. He's not eradicating it. He's reinventing it. He's giving a further explanation, further meaning and significance to this. And so he's doing these things. And you just imagine what that was like because this original meal is this Passover as a memorial for God's people of the Exodus. That Exodus means fleeing or being drawn out. That God has delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. He's freed them. He's pulled them out. He has saved them. He has rescued them. And so this meal is to be a reminder to them every year of what God did in rescuing them and helping them, getting them out of that enslavement. And so it's full of these symbols. There's the lamb. You're going to eat lamb. And this lamb, having been sacrificed like the lambs who were originally sacrificed, and the blood was put over the doorframe so that the angel of death would pass over without killing the firstborn. So you eat lamb every year for this meal to remember there was a lamb who was sacrificed so that your firstborn would not die. And then there would be this unleavened bread, this bread made without yeast. Um, there's no starter in it, and I had to look up what a starter is. Chris gave me some notes this week. I'm like, I, I don't cook a lot. So. But the idea is, like, there's nothing to help the bread to rise. And this, this bread, again, because there's such a, an urgency to them getting out, you made this bread unleavened. There's no time for that. And so, again, every year, they would take the leaven out of their house for the seven days leading up to this, and they would eat this unleavened bread made in haste. So they would remember and be reminded of the haste with which they had to prepare, eat, and then depart to flee as God saved them with his sovereign hand to draw them out. And there would be bitter herbs. These bitter herbs would be a reminder to them of the bitterness of their enslavement, that their oppression was harsh, And so they would eat, and the taste would be this experiential thing to remind them of how bitter their lives were before God saved them. And at this point, um, tradition had added on some elements that that were not bad things, but were just in addition to what Scripture actually prescribed and required of them. But there were these four cups of wine. Like, it's a party. Um, Wine is something that you brought on on special occasions or it showed that you had wealth, you had status, or this was a time of significance. And so for this Passover meal, they had four cups of wine, and this was to represent the fourfold promise that God made to Moses about delivering Israel. And so you again imagine that they're seated around this table, or they're actually inclined or reclined. They're, they're, it's probably in keeping with the culture. It's a Roman triclinium. And so these low-lying tables, because they didn't tend to have seats like we do, they'd have these mats or couch cushions, essentially, and they would lie on their side and eat there kind of around this threefold table to where a server could come into the midst. And I look forward to one year when we get through, particularly the Gospel of John, just explaining like how beautiful that picture is. Um, But here they are, and it's the Passover meal. So you have these symbols, these elements. There's lamb. You have these four cups of blessing, the promises. You have the, the bitter herbs. You have the unleavened bread and they're here and they're eating and Jesus, knowing better than any of them what all of this represents and they're to remember these things and they have things that they would pray and they would say and they would discuss the history of how God saved the Israelites. And now Jesus takes the bread and this cup and says, well actually this is my body and this is my blood. 
So he's, this is a new supper. This is the Lord's Supper. He's instituting what we would call an ordinance or a sacrament. This is one of the two things that Jesus commanded us. As a church, you do these things. You baptize and you partake of the Lord's Supper. And we do these things to remember him because he gives greater meaning and there's symbolism still there. And so we look at that and we think, okay, this is just a continuation but kind of a reorientation of the Passover meal. So where's the lamb? Like why do we have the bread and the cup but we don't have the lamb anymore? What happened? Where's the lamb? Well, Jesus is the lamb of God. When John saw him, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus himself is there as the lamb. And then he takes this cup, this wine, and it's the blood of Jesus poured out for many, he said, that now atones for us like that Passover lamb. That there once was a literal animal lamb who died, who was slaughtered, and the blood of that lamb covered the doorpost so that the firstborn would not be killed and the angel of death would pass over. And Jesus is saying, I am that lamb. I must be slaughtered so that my blood can cover for you, so that the wrath of God would not be poured out on you. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And we have this cup with the blood showing that blood that covers us. And, he, and I don't want you to miss, he says this is the cup or the blood of the covenant. What is the covenant? What, what reference is that? What is this covenant? And in other gospels, um, we see Jesus actually used the term and, and some translations and manuscripts actually include it here, the, the new covenant. And this is direct language to tie us back to what the prophets foretold. If you go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, um, the, the people of God have been given these covenants. And so there's a covenant established. The covenant is just always how we relate with God. And so God would call his people to himself and say, this is our covenant. Here are the terms of how we will be in this covenant relationship. There's a promised blessing for obedience. There's a curse to come for disobedience. And so if you are obedient, you are blessed. If you are disobedient, you are cursed. And he warns them over and over again. And each time he's like, you're going to fail. And there's going to be just... It's, it's consequences that are just and are coming. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they're going to come and you're going to go back into your bitterness, into enslavement, just like I drew you out of Egypt. If you turn from me, you'll get what you're asking for. And so the Israelites, history plays out, they do. They fail over and over in these covenants. They fail to meet the terms of the covenant and, and the law as we know it. That these are the things we are to do to rightly relate with each other and with God and we just fail over and over and we know that the point of the law is to show us that we cannot keep the law and to be an expression of God's holiness and so we don't discount the law, we don't just nullify it but instead we say that is something we should strive for but now we realize that its real function was to show us we cannot keep it and the prophets, while the people of Israel are going back into bitter enslavement, they've been conquered by the foreign nations um, they receive this new promise prophetically, this new covenant is coming and I want to read it to you and just let this sink in if you've never heard this, um, this is what thousands of years prior was promised about what Jesus would do and what Jesus is referencing when he says, this is the blood of the covenant. What covenant? It is this new covenant. And this is what it says. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. On that day, I took them by the hands and lead them out of the land of Egypt my covenant that they broke, 
even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. Who does every bit of that covenant? God. He says, I will do this. I will write my name and my, my law on their heart and they will know me and there will no longer be a need for, for teachers because every one of them will know me. They are mine and I will forgive their sin and I will remember their sin no more. All of it is God doing every bit of it. And you're like, what kind of covenant is that? And so you imagine the people of God receiving this covenant and saying like, a new covenant is coming. It's not here yet, but a new covenant is coming. And in this new covenant, it's not going to be like the old covenant for their bitter consequences for not keeping it. In the new covenant, every bit of it is just God does all this. And what do you do on your end? You're just mine. You're forgiven. I'll take care of every bit of it. What? And then here is Jesus at this meal saying, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is how, because his blood covers us. It atones. It's this hiding of us. It covers our sins. That is how we are forgiven by the blood that was shed for us. This beautiful new covenant. And then there's the bread. And the bread Jesus takes, and he says that it is his body. His body broken for us. That we're to eat the bread and remember the body of Jesus. All of this is pointing to Jesus and that he has done this to save us. The shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body, him nailed to a cross, dying. That is our true Passover. That is our true freedom, our rescue. That the Exodus story is all of our story. We may not be in a foreign nation, enslaved, but we are deeply enslaved to our sin. Before Jesus comes and he rescues us, God sovereignly reaches in and gives us life and freedom and draws us out of that enslavement. And he's saying, look, when you take this meal, this Passover meal, you need to understand it is more than just this historic event. It is all of us. And now let me reinterpret, reimagine this for you to see fully what it is. I am the Passover lamb. I will die. My blood will be spilled. It's poured out for many to be forgiven because the new covenant, you remember it? That I'm going to do this. I will save you. It's not this covenant where you need to be good enough. You could never be good enough. And history has shown you will not keep the terms of these covenants. So here's a new beautiful covenant. I'm just going to do every bit of it myself. I'll save you. I will write my name on your heart. I'll write my law on your heart. So you'll just live out of the reality of who you are as my people. And it's going to be my body broken for you. So when you eat that bread, it's not just a matter of here. There's, there's some urgency here. Let's remember, this was the urgency. The urgency was that the infinite son of God died to save you. It's a picture of the gospel. As a church, when we come to the table to observe, to observe this Lord's Supper, to eat this bread and drink from the cup, we must remember that this is to remember and proclaim the gospel. 
that we regularly come together to remember and proclaim the gospel. And so uh, we are making a shift to our weekly gatherings. We have prayed about this for a long time and gone back and forth with different arguments for this way and that way, um, but we have decided as your pastors that, that we think that this is important and we should do this often. And so weekly we will observe the Lord's Supper. And, and one of the biggest things that made us hesitate on that, I grew up in a tradition that, that only did um, communion on like the fifth Sunday when you had a fifth Sunday. And, and I just always was told like, we just don't want that to become a religious ritual thing. We wanted to keep its meaning and its significance. And so I was fearful of that. But here's the thing. If it loses its significance and meaning because of repetition, that is our fault. That is on us. It reflects a heart that is not set on Christ and his mission. If Sunday gatherings are the only time that we really come together to give thought to the gospel and what Christ has called us to, then yes, it can become pretty meaningless. And repetitive. But if we are living day in and day out on mission for Christ, if the gospel is so part of your identity that this is who I am as a son of God, I've been given a mission, I'm going to live for his glory all week long, then that hunger is growing and, and I'm starving and so I'm looking forward to Sunday when I can eat the bread and, or, yeah, eat the bread and drink from the cup together with you so that we can remember and proclaim this is the good news. He has saved me. The new covenant, he has done this for us. And we find nourishment in that. So let us be that. Grow a hunger throughout the week. Be on mission. And, and Why? Why do we do this? Like, why, why did Jesus really need to give us, like, he gave us a big book, right? We just read this and remember. You're always telling us we should be reading our Bibles every day, right? Why can't we, that, can that be enough? Why do we need another thing? But this is special. This is special. Uh, the Book of Common Worship includes this invitation to communion. It says, brothers and sisters, as we draw near to the Lord's table to celebrate the communion of the body and blood of Christ, we are grateful to remember that our Lord instituted this ordinance for the perpetual memory of his dying for our sakes and the pledge of his undying love. As a bond of our union with him and each other as members of his mystical body, as a seal of his promises to us and renewal of our obedience to him, for the blessed assurance of his presence with us who are gathered here in his name, as an opportunity for us who love the Savior to feed spiritually on him who is the bread of life and as a pledge of his coming again. And so when we come and we partake in the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember these things and we'll try to, to remind you of them. But the, the significance of this is it's memory that we come, and it's memory that just as the Passover meal was meant to be full of symbols to remind them of the actual Passover and their deliverance from Egypt, the Lord's Supper is to be a reminder of our full deliverance from enslavement to sin. It's about memory. This is why with the bread and the wine, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So when you come to the table, remember his sacrifice. This is about communion. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 17 says, the cup of blessing that we bless, which is the cup that Christ picked up in that supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, 
since all of us share the one bread, when we come to the table, we come together. Every one of us. We come together, all in need of the same Savior, the same salvation, secured the same way for every one of us. As we come in grace and love for each other, seeing the grace and love of our Savior to be united. This is about presence. The presence of God as we look upon, we feel the elements, these tangible things that are symbols. We know that Christ is truly present. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, he comes to us at the Lord's Supper in a way more real than our simply remembering him or simply being granted his grace. Christ is indeed present to us at the Lord's Supper, but not according to the flesh. His presence is a personal presence. This is not some sort of spiritualized presence, but rather a presence through the Holy Spirit. He is with us. This is about assurance. We come to the Lord's table to be assured because we have doubts. And let's be honest, we all have doubts. If you have no doubts, you also have no faith. To have faith is to have some level of doubt, or it would not be faith. But we come regularly to the Lord's table to be assured in our doubting. We come to the table wherever we are, no matter how far you have run, no matter how filthy you are, we run back directly to God. And we see him at the table, and we know he's available for us. Like, God is not putting up these metrics, these benchmarks, saying, like, if you want to be near to me, like, you feel distant, well, you're going to need to get this together, you're going to need to get that together, you're going to have to stop that, because I'll have none of that. None of that is true. Instead, he's saying, I'm right here, run back. He's the father waiting for the prodigal son who is left, and he's just there on the porch, like, come on, come on, and he sees you on the road, and he doesn't even wait for you to arrive, he takes off running and throws his arms around you. Come back to him. And so when you come to the table, you realize he's here and he's waiting and we are assured that he loves us. He's ready and he's waiting and he wants us with him. Pastor Dane Ortland said it like this. He said, in Jesus Christ, we are given a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. Do you get that? That God enjoys you coming back to him. So come to him. He wants you. We know that we belong here. It's further assurance, my son. Um, he's crazy. <laughs> he's six years old. He's about to turn seven, but I'll, I'll just like, I'll walk in the room and he's like broke something or like something's just clearly not okay. And before I can say anything, he just looks at me with that super guilty expression. He's just like, it's fine. It's fine, dad. It's fine. <laughs> like, who are you to say whether it's fine or not? You have no right to say if it's fine. This is not fine. <laughs> when we come to the table, it's our way of hearing our Lord say, it's fine. Why? Because it's the new covenant that he has done this for us. And so we come, it's entirely grace. We don't deserve this. But then we hear our loving Savior say, it's fine. You get a message from the doctor saying, bring dad, because we need to talk. And when your friends are just betraying you left and right, your spouse is mouthing off, your whatever it is, whatever the hard things are in your life, whatever calamity, self-inflicted or not, you come to the Lord's table and you remind, or you hear and you remember, you're reminded that Jesus stands there saying, it's fine, I have you. 
that maybe you started to fixate too much on the other things of this world and you need to come back and see this picture of the gospel and realize, you know what? In light of eternity, I have everything I need. It is fine. I eat this bread and I drink this cup and I can sing, it is well. It's well. Everything is fine. We live for him and his mission. (laughs) If we die, just gain it's fine. And then lastly, this is about proclamation. That we proclaim. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. as for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is our commission. This is what we live for. To make much of him. That he loves us and we get to share this good news with everyone. And so in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim this gospel, this good news that Christ has died and he is risen and he stands as a savior ready and mighty to save. The passage continues in verse 27. It says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. That's serious. So then he says, Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. As a believer, you don't come lightly to the Lord's table. You come boldly, as Reggie read earlier, to the throne of grace, because there is a throne of grace. We don't deserve to be there, but in light of his grace, we must confess that we don't deserve to be there. We must repent. We must turn from our sin. And so we come as sinners in need of a savior. Don't come with your self-righteousness. Don't come with unrepentant sin. Don't come with relational strife. As Jesus said, when you come to the altar to present your offering and you remember your brother has something against you, just leave it there. Set it on the ground. Walk away. Go take care of that. And now come back. This matters. And people were legitimately getting sick and some even dying because they took this in an unworthy manner. So this is no joke. Examine your heart and then come and celebrate that there's a savior. There's provision. It's his body and his blood. But this is for the believer. So as we proclaim the gospel to each other, we also proclaim this gospel to the unbeliever. That in this moment, if you have not, decided to trust and follow Christ, believing in the salvation that is procured by his body broken for us, his blood shed and spilt for many, then do that now. Because otherwise you have no part in this. See and decide. And lastly, I just want to say, every week when we come to the Lord's table, I hope you hear our King, our God, and our friend, gently calling you in love and tender compassion, with mercy and grace that knows no end. May you receive his invitation. Revelation chapter 3. John is receiving this, and Jesus says, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. 
I know your works, that you're neither hot or cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed. Your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. You come here. Are we lukewarm? It's just something we do. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer. But then he, Jesus stands there saying, you're not on fire for me. You're not hot. And you're not a nice, refreshing, cool drink. You're just lukewarm. And that's gross. I just want to throw up. So come to me. I'll change this. It's new covenant language. I will do this for you. So just come to me. But then hear this next part. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus stands knocking. Son, friend, where have you been? I want to come in. Let me in. That's Jesus showing up. Saying, I want to eat with you. And hey, I brought the bread and the wine. Will you let me in? So come at the invitation of Jesus. Partake of his body and his blood to remember, to proclaim all of these things. The heart of God on display in a beautiful way that resonates with us. And the story, in this tangible form as a reminder. So let's remember and let's celebrate. As you are ready, you examine your heart, confess your sin, confess your Savior, and eat and drink, remembering and proclaiming, this is the gospel, this is good news.